It's difficult for most of the people in this room, except a couple who may be in the same decade I am in, but for the rest of you, you don't understand what the Second World War did. None of you. For you, it's all a history lesson. The fact of the matter is, the Second World War, as, by the way, Pope John Paul II on various occasions also alluded to, um, probably, I mean, and in, insofar as the Second World War is since the sequence of the First World War. Two great world wars of the 20th century, but the Second World War in particular, uh, it's, we don't know. I don't know anybody who has done an accurate analysis, people have hypotheses, about why, what, what it did to Western civilization and to American civilization. And it probably was the moment when the thin thread
suspicion happens, which is to say friendly equipment. The practice of uh, the abbot giving commentaries on scripture formed part of the routine of the day. And they became developed in the Cistercians, which is why we had the huge Cistercian Father's with all of the different homilies. But they were, or chapter talks given to the monks. And of course, for many reasons, which have to do with the allegorization of the Song of uh, Solomon's Canticle of Canticles, the Cistercians, uh, many of them preferred following, by the way, St. Bernard, lengthy commentaries on the Song of Songs. And we, we don't recognize that today, but it's one of the most commented on by Catholic scholars, Catholic commentators, of all, New Te- of all biblical books. In any case, in this prologue, St. Bernard of Clairvaux says, the instruction that I, I quote, uh, the instruction that I address to you, my brothers, will differ from those I should deliver to people in the world, at least the manner will be different. I'll read that again. The instruction that I address to you, will say my brothers and sisters, will differ from those I should deliver to people in the world, at least the manner will be different. Now, St. Bernard proceeds on the assumption that the monks already find themselves disposed to love the sacred text, and so he can speak to them not as searchers, but as lovers of what is true. Just think for a moment, what's the motto of the Enlightenment? Dare to know. How do something? By referring to the provocative essay of Don John Leclerc, it is not my intention to comment on the distinctions that he introduces between scholastic and monastic theologies. That's an interesting study in itself. Still less do I want to lend credence to the view that one should drive a wedge between professional studies for ministry and monastic studies for consecrated persons. That's another big problem. Hopefully you won't have to confront it. The fact of the matter is that St. Thomas Aquinas has taught us how to combine both the salutary emphases of the monastic tradition with the reasoned argumentation that later developed within the scholastic tradition. Just to say, that where Catholic education is realized properly, and Christendom College, I'm pleased to say, as far as I can see, after watching for about 25 years, I think like I first came here 25 years ago, um, I think, I'm pretty sure. Um, it was early on, I know, in your foundation. In any case, um, is an example of Catholic education together. The fact of the matter is, that you approach your studies already not so much as searchers for the truth, but as lovers of the truth. And to the extent that you develop, it develops not out of a hubris for learning what my SAT scores, am I going to get into Harvard, where am I going to go, blah, 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 all of which is part of the instrumentalization of knowledge, because the knowledge, of course, is only good for what? To get the money to be able to do something else besides study, my work. But your, whatever study you do is a penetrating study, which is moved because, for a variety of reasons, you already adhere in love to the truth. And you see everything, without, of course, reducing the arts, the theology, you see everything, within the 
context of the love of God. It is also argued that the birth of scholasticism was inevitable once ancient philosophy, especially Aristotle, became known to the universities of Europe, roughly at the beginning of the 12th century. In any case, which is to say, you know, you can't escape learning, because philosophy keeps putting itself in front of you, and it just, you, no one's able to disinherit. You know, not all the efforts, as Ralph Mackney liked to say, you know, metaphysics always seems to survive its fall if Aristotle were going to die, he would have died by now. <laughs> but there you have John Cutterback. <laughs> 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 this is also, uh, you look at the nuns up on the hill in Linden, some of you have been there. Um, they're living the life substantially the same that St. Dominic confided to the first Dominican nuns in Puri in France in the beginning of the 13th century. You can't kill it. You can't kill it. You might, it might look like it's, you're losing, it's all going to collapse in on you, but you can't kill it. <laughs> it comes back. Okay. If, if we want to discover a little bit about, you know, then uh, this, the kind of education that attractive are pursuing and how Aquinas considers it to be the model, we can look at a text from the Summa Contra Gentilis, where Aquinas explains, and I quote, that our intellect extends to the infinite in understanding, but this ordination of the intellect would be in vain unless an intelligible reality existed. Now, some of you may have the copy of this text, and you're welcome to it. You can read the whole thing. That's the one um, typo. It's a funny, somebody picked it up for me, and, and and I, the text reads, uh, it, such an ordination of the intellect would be in vain unless an infinite, intelligible reality exited. <laughs> and feel free to put, where did it go? <laughs> so in other words, since nothing is loved unless it is first known, the love of learning in, inevitably leads to the desire for God. And that's the factor. And that's the point about contemplation for the philosopher, contemplation for the theologian. So yearning is never absent from Aquinas' theology, although he admittedly prefers to express the affective movement of the soul in a way that one may call intellectualist rather than emotional. In any case, now, I draw your attention to the more than 50-year-old lectures of Dom Jean Leclerc to defend a thesis that today may be considered in some quarters quite controversial, namely, that every authentically Christian approach to knowledge remains monastic in character. Now, as I brought Mr. Todd Gerber's here, uh, and he's preparing to enter the making of issue, right? that this, that this is what a monastery looks like in after Dismal Hollow Road. You know that you're in a different... Okay. This means that all learning is fundamentally contemplate contemplative. Study proceeds successfully only within the establishment of a real contact with God. Now this thesis holds especially true for the training, it seems to me, uh, of priests. There's no question about that. 
that was where you got it from. But today, and we can see a development of doctrine, what was applicable to the clerics and monks of the Middle Ages is applicable, of course, today to everybody. And that, of course, is Andreas Vatican II Lumen Gentium and the universal call to holiness and the, the recognition that the laity participate in their own particular way in the prophetic, kingly, and even priestly charism of Christ. Now, why did it take, however, a Benedictine monk to point out the connection between learning and the love of God, to point out that all learning is contemplative, and to point out that um, the one who studies best is the one who loves best. And it seems to me that uh, it took a Benedictine monk, because a Benedictine monk knew about Bernard of Clouveau. In the same prologue to his commentaries on the Song of Songs, St. Gregory writes, only the touch of the spirit can inspire a song like this, and only personal experience, he's talking about some of the, the Old Testament texts, and only personal experience can unfold its meaning. Let those who are versed in the mystery revel in it. Let all others burn with desire to attain to this experience than merely to learn about it. Now, this is classic monastic Benedictine Cistercian theology. This is the so-called effective theology of St. Bernard that many, of course, historical theologians like to put in contrast to the scholastics. That looks very fashionable. What Jean Leclerc pointed out is it would be a big mistake to, to, to cleave or to introduce a cleavage between the two contemplations. Now, I don't have to tell you that when it would be the supreme anachronism to interpret St. Bernard's emphasis on experience according to the contemporary fashionable but still Marxist-inspired views of experience. Marxist-inspired views of experience is nothing more than what you get from becoming involved, ultimately, at the level of the material. And this is the so-called practical learning. It goes on all the time. In seminaries and theology schools, it's a terrible bane. The supposition is that you send a lot of people out and you put them in a catechism class and they go in and uh, they watch how it's done and the questions the kids have done and they come out and as a result of that experience, which is to say they've had contact with the process, or they go to a hospital and talk to somebody, they don't know what to say to the sick person, they know nothing about eschatology, they know nothing about the sacraments, they know nothing, anything about the, salvific, about the salvific meaning of suffering, they absolutely know nothing, but they do know that they've been at the sick bed, and they can come up and have the, I mean, that's, that's the Marxist view of experience, which of course is part of a Marxist program that privileges the practical over the theoretical for reasons that we know about. That's not what St. Bernard had in mind. St. Bernard was happily pre-Marxist. 
people today talk about experience as a locus for learning, they usually, as I said, proceed on the, the supposition that knowledge develop, develops only from below, from the bottom up, so to speak, and that the task of the inquirer is to immerse him or herself as much as possible into the rhythms of the materialist evolution that governs the universe. On the contrary, St. Bernard held and expressly taught that in the knowledge of divine things, such as the text of a biblical author, it is God who really does the teaching. It's God that creates the experience. St. Bernard's understanding of experience approaches an effective knowing. An amata notitia, that's a, text from a phrase from St. Thomas. It's a nice one to hold on to. Amata, love. Notitia, you could translate it awareness. You could even push it and translate it consciousness. An amata notitia. An effective beholding, perhaps. And as I said, Aquinas later takes this up <coughs> in his theory of knowledge, actually, when he observes that there's something of love and knowledge, and something of knowledge and love. Love of the word, of delexio verbi, is a beloved awareness, and not a notizia. And this principle that he enunciates comes precisely from the study of the Trinity. That's the kind of experience that St. Bernard is talking about. That's why it's so important in a Catholic college to have an ordered life. Because you can't have an amata noticia if your loves are radically disordered. That is to say, if your loves are outside of the plan of divine wisdom, if you know that. So just as there is no theology without moral life and asceticism, so there is no theology without prayer. I mean, this is also the lesson of the monastery, isn't it? Prayer is the way that we let God instruct us, if you will, to create in us the very experience that makes it possible for us to have the amount of noticia, the beloved This applies to everything. It can be history, it can be mathematics. Bernard, of course, shifts the movement of learning from the one who speaks, seeks, rather, the query to knowledge, to the one who desires to know, and from what is to be known, to what is to be experienced, so back down to the moral life, asceticism, prayer, these qualities of life still mark the monastic and should mark the culture of any authentic learning. And it sets the standard for all authentic learning. Now, I don't, you know, I'm not going to come. One of the things that I don't do when I come to Catholic colleges is remind them how different they are from the secular colleges because it's self-defeating. But we know that one of the big mistakes about freedom that our Catholic institutions have made, which is presumably the reason for their material success, is precisely on this point of recognizing that a an atmosphere for learning is an atmosphere that has to be governed by asceticism, the, mor the moral life, asceticism and prayer. And the moral life means the virtues. When you have a destructed, when you have no moral life, no asceticism, and no prayer, except perhaps nominal masses for 
specific occasions for graduation. Then you have to ask yourself about what kind of learning is going on, and you'll know you're going to discover shortly what the answer is. You get very smart people who are able to manipulate an awful lot of things, although the stock market doesn't look like it's one of the ones that's surrendering itself to manipulation very nicely, but it ain't. But you don't get wise people. Now then, when you want to ask why are there no vocations coming out of the Catholic college, you begin to be discovered. A reason, if not principle. So John John Leclerc conducts his reader on a tour then of the history of monasticism. I'm not going to talk about that from the beginning to the dawn of the high mid middle ages. And I'm not going to talk about it because I know that Christendom College puts a great deal of emphasis on pointing back to the illustration of these that was its classic intuition from one of your founders, Dr. Carroll. And the fact of the matter is what John Leclerc discovers is all the things that kept civilization going, and humanely so. In other words, the things that were effective all came out of monks who were living a moral life, asceticism and prayer, and learning not only just how to uh, solve philosophical problems, but how to plant a garden, get fish out of a river, and do all of the other things that, in fact, are the reason why we're here today and have some books in front of us. And the last point I want to make, which is a very uh, simple one, and that is that uh, when Don Jean Leclerc describes the flowering of monastic culture in the early Middle Ages, uh, he has a very poignant way of describing how it is that what we've been talking about here, the love of learning and the desire for God, um, achieved such great success. And without romanticizing the Middle Ages, because there, there were a lot of things that the Middle Ages didn't have, like electricity, even up, or you wouldn't have had mediated nightmares. Or if you got me here, you'd have me for a long time because it was a very long trip back to Boston. In any case, from the, you know, people who travel around. So that we don't have to romanticize the Middle Ages. But we do have to recognize, and I have texts, I think, somewhere from here from Benedict XVI, who, who certainly read, by the way, Don John Leclerc as a student, absolutely no question about it. And much as he's saying is reflecting John. Don John Leclerc's presentation now of the love of money and the desire of God. But what uh, Leclerc also shows is the situation that I've described began to unravel long before the end of the Second World War. Now, here, again, others can draw meta-theories about history. I'm not going to do it. But he observes that, okay, succeeding the monastic and cathedral schools became the great universities, you know that, were in the 13th century. And in the 13th century, you have the achievement of people like Thomas Aquinas, and you could add St. Bonaventure if you want. And then, of course, things go south, as you say today. 
this history is well documented in Father Pinquet's many, you can find it in many books. Father Sylvain Pinquet in his book on moral theology has a very good treatment of it, at least as it pertains to moral theology. This is, this is the rise of nominalism. And then the rise of nominalism brings us to the uh, antechamber of the Reformation. And that brings us to the views of humanism in the beginning of the 16th century. And uh, Leclerc really dates the beginning of the unraveling of the desire, the union of the two contemplations to that two he, he had this 1509. That's about 500 years ago. 500 years. And that's Erasmus's praise of folly. And there are, whether well, now, we're not here to debate the historical analysis that there are certain, a lot has happened since 1509, and a lot has uh, followed upon the humanism of the 16th century. And there are worse things you can have than the humanism of the 16th century, by the way, certainly worse things you can have than Erasmus. But for reasons that are hard to put together, but are incontestable, for about 500 years, the secret of Western civilization as an instrument of human flourishing. Because after all, the desire for God and the love of learning is so that human beings will have a better life. That for 500 years, it's been under subtle and not so subtle attack. And if it's true that one of the last outposts, and this will be my final remark, and we can have some questions, was Catholic education and this is the Father Matthew Lamb's thesis, such as it was developed in our country roughly from the middle of the 19th century up to the middle of the 20th century. So roughly 100, 125, you can even push it to 150 years. There weren't there were many.
And it's one that if I were your age, I think I probably might get in my car. I, I, I would like to say I was brave as you people are. I, in 1962, when I became a freshman in college, I think around Providence College, the world looked, you know, was pretty much still the American re-Christianization and Christianizing of the medieval world. Uh, that ended very quickly. Two years later. <laughs> so, uh, there it is. Now, we, there's a lot there we can talk about, but uh, I, it's, it's meant to do, you know, three things. First of all, to encourage you, not to discourage you, because the fact of the matter is, what you've got is the real thing. Secondly, it is uh, to let you know that what you've got is not an oddball, ideological, nobody else in the world understands what we're doing, or for that matter, simply pious Catholic thing. You're not social conservatives, and you shouldn't think of yourself as that. It is political, that's the political sociological category. You're among the last young people who recognize that the love of learning and the desire of God goes together. That recognize that there are two contemplations and give a wit about either one of them. Now that's a remarkable gift, by the way, for you. And that's how you should think about yourself. As the inheritors of the long tradition, not, you know, the, not the Amish, not the kind of uh, you know, the side, the side road, the side, uh, the, the kind of the people that are smart enough to have caught on, you know, what's really all about. And, so and the other, I must be said to be honest, why I really came here, and that is, uh, I, the fact of the matter is that while husbands and wives, and there are many husbands and wives that give a remarkable example of being able to live up the love of learning and the desire for God. And this is the point of Don John Leclerc, who was born in a monastery. And it needs the monastery. A monastery can be interpreted broadly today. I don't know. It can be a Benedictine monastery, a Cistercian monastery, it can be a Dominican priory, for example. It can be it can be the monasteries that are the Holy Father is always talking about the new movements, it can be the houses the memory of Dominic, Comunione, Liberazione, it can be the Medicatechum of the Way. There are many different places where the monastery comes to life. But one thing, my view, of course, and this is why the nuns are so important, even for Dominicans who don't priests, right, who don't live in monasteries. Unless you have the original model, the archetype is fairly platonic, but unless you have the original archetype and model, then you forget what the monastery There have to be some contemplative. There have to be people who devote themselves exclusively to this. Because otherwise, the rest of us will forget. The world has forgotten. Now, you want a footnote as I close. And this is, uh, this is I, have to, I have to acknowledge this footnote because it's from Russ Hittinger, who I think made the teacher of John Pettibar. Very famous, you know, Russ Hittinger. He's been a friend of Christopher Forty. And he told me. The United, you might ask, you know, yourself, if not some of you, the young people, if you've had these discussions, maybe it's not a new question, but you may want to ask yourself, well, why did it all fall apart so quickly after all? I mean, my mother was certainly, you know, born in 1960.
40 years, man. Well, nobody really knows the answer to that. No, nobody has a real answer to it. They can postulate certain things that we know. But remember, the United States is the first country where Catholicism grew up without a reasonable contact with an authentic monastery. Not in every part of the country. You can point to monasteries. I find Berryville here. And you can point to monasteries, and you can point to a geographic sphere of influence that they had. And some of them, it was quite large. Belmont Abbey in North Carolina is a college here in Minnesota. You can point to places where there were monasteries. But by and large, that's not where the United States grew up. The United States grew up around the big industrial cities of the Northeast. And there weren't a lot of monasteries there. There were Jesuits. <laughs> 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 no, I mean, the point is, the point is, and sisters, some of you, some of you, if you think, some of you, you know, if you think that God's given, giving you that calling and that vocation, you know, the church needs people who keep the original architect of the monastery going. And that's my third, but not my primary reason for coming almost. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much.
psychological structure of the act is the same. And, you know, there are certain, there you can read John of the Earth, you can get into Christ, but you can read John of the Cross and Aristotle, and it's, what you're expected to do is, is pretty, is the same. It's the same psychological actions. So first of all, I mean, as the word contemplation suggests, you can't be running around saying, oh, yeah, that, yeah. I mean, it's focused on the template. It's focused. And it searches for the highest, which means that the full energies of the human person have to be applied. And that to the extent that the, the one seeking to contemplate is engaged in a natural activity which has a natural rhythm and a natural end, you kind of know when you've reached it or you haven't. Uh, there false, you can have false contemplation. There's a lot of confusion about this. You can have people, you know, you can, so timing is all kinds of, uh, shall we say, uh, alternative views of, of contemplation. Emanation is one, and then moving up and down. Or you can look at Buddhism as a contemplative life, but it's a contemplative life that has no term, as far as we know. It's certainly not God, it doesn't seem to be God. But it is God, it's not exactly clear. But. So there's a natural rhythm and a natural movement and a natural capacity which has its own perfection which is to be parallel with the completion of perfection of any other natural capacity like eating, begetting children, and all the rest of it. So the psychological structure for that is the same. Because when the saint contemplates, the saint uses the, uh, the same, if you will, mental energies. Now, for anybody, you know, I jumps, I mean, uh, up says, but wait a minute now, Christianity is about love, Aristotle, some say, not here, sure, had no understanding of the will and so Well, okay, there is a question about how affect plays a role. And we talked about that, and that's what Bernard said, you know. Some are searchers, and others uh, have a lovers. The monks were lovers, they were inside, Whereas these diocesans are seminarians, and by the way, there's a certain, uh, were searchers because they came in from the world to become a priest and become a you know, bishop and do my work. So, uh, right, okay. Uh, and if you could say, and I suppose I'm not a philosopher, I mean, I suppose if you contrast John of the Cross with Aristotle, most people come away and say, well, what's the big difference in the manner? It would be the role that affect plays. But as an old, I mean, you know, my Aristotelianism is kind of classic Neoptolemus Aristotelianism. I mean, I, I give Aristotle more credit for love, even precisely because it's hard to think that his appetites didn't follow the intellect, and even though he didn't dwell very much talking about it. But you could say, you could say that Christianity has a, a more emphatic emphasis on the affect. But I don't think it changes the essential structure. 
unless you're Francis. <laughs> you know, if you want, you know, you're not even trying. I mean, you really, nobody can say, you know, I don't care what I behold, I just want to look. People, so that's not a Christian position. Now, you can say that the formal concept of the beatific vision is joy and not the intelligibility of the groups and forth. You can do those sorts of things if you want to get into those discussions. But in the end, really, what you're dealing with there is nothing more than the confirmation of the thesis that I'm talking about. So they differ by reason of the formality under which they attain the highest truth. But they're alike, and that's why they go together in the uh, psychological structure, which psychological structure, of course, reflects the nature of the human person. Which is why we don't have the, the contemplation of the saints. It's hard to keep up the contemplation of being. And people don't, but well, you just, you know, I want to say that you know, the transcendentalists go low. You know, there are episodic, episodic moments in the history where people become ecstatic. Do you want to say Hegel had a, uh, you, you, you know, I don't know, you could say those things. But uh, it didn't, you know, I mean, Hegel's something different entirely altogether. And people like Thoreau's point transcendentalism in the end. But that, down yeah. uh, exactly what you're saying. Are you distinguishing the two forms of people who've been trying to do it for 40 years? <laughs> are you distinguishing the two forms of contemplation as essentially different because one is based, one, one is a contemplation of God based on natural knowledge and the other is a contemplation of God based on supernatural revelation? Uh, or are you saying it's a difference between a knowing of God that is not based on love, or is not stimulated by love, and one that is? You seem... No, no, I'm sorry. I, I may have said too much. You asked me, what's the same and what's different? Right. What's di I began with what's different because it's the easiest, and what's different is what you said. Uh, the first or the second? The, the first. Oh, okay. Yeah. Natural versus supernatural. Yeah, I didn't use that language, though, you know, because I got to inform you, unfortunately, natural versus supernatural is, um, you know, people choke on that a lot today. So I think I said, one is uh, a, a contemplation that achieves, that embraces the highest being through natural reasoning. And then I said, the other is the Trinity. It makes it a little more concrete. Which one only has access through through the revelation made in Jesus Christ and the whole economy of salvation. So, I mean, I, I tried to show it a little differently. That's where they differ, and that's a big difference. But where they come together is in the fact that they're both contemplative acts. I mean, it's, if we, and, and then I'm in, into the question of the cycle, and, and my first point is that though there are those commentators who would argue, I mean, this is the classic problem of uh, Augustine and Aquinas, that would argue 
that the heart should play more of a role in Christian theology than the intellect, the fact of the matter is contemplation remains an intellectual act. And then I perhaps got in over my head by saying, I don't, my own view about old Aristotle is that even though you won't find in him the kinds of edifying and uplifting remarks that Jonathan, and poetic remarks that Jonathan Cross makes, if you stop and think about it, I mean, once Aristotle is in his contemplative moment, he's got to be there for your body and soul mind and heart. Because otherwise it wouldn't be a perfection. So, I mean, uh, however, however, because it could sound, I mean, you could get condemned probably for reducing Christian contemplation too much to a natural contemplation. It must be recognized that, and I would say here, because of the incarnation. And, and uh, most of the, the, the uh, redemption incarnation, which is to say Christ death on the cross. <coughs> Christ has made it possible for all us to love. I mean, Christ's death restores the effects of original sin that sink deep, deep most deeply into the affect. So Christ has made it possible for us to love better. So the Christian probably does have a richer experience of love than Aristotle dreamt of. That's probably true. Because Aristotle didn't any know any way to uh, address original sin. Which is, of course, why for him the contemplative class, and then, and then the classic way that that all washes out is what? For Aristotle, the contemplative class was a very small group of people that the others served. Whereas for the gospel, as you know, the gospel, the contemplative class is everybody. Even the little ones. back in one of the earlier incarnations of our core curriculum. We have a little inside of one of our textbooks. Ah, so uh, and the literature was from civilization as a way to uh, read the venerable need and uh, another text. I have, a, I have a quick question, Father. If a, a student in the room is inspired to take his intellectual project more seriously. What would your what would your main recommendation be? Talk to you. <laughs> <laughs> well
that the point about the moral life, the ascetic life, and prayer, those guard the mind for the kind of freedom to pursue. Because where your treasure is, there also your heart will be. And what the moral life, the virtues, and the, and the ascetical life does is ensure that leaving all the room in the world for recreation and for social life and all of it, because the virtuous life is a balance. I'm not talking about paramedical asceticism. Excuse me. But, um, you know, without a, the virtuous life, ascetical life, the ascetical life, because there are certain things that only an attention to asceticism uh, is going to help you to realize. So, for example, you can do a paper, and you can come to a footnote, and you can say, oh, gee, I never knew that. That would be really interesting. Oh, look at that book is in our library. Oh, that's the book that Professor X talked about. Yeah, I'm going to, you know, and you make and you a little piece of paper, and you write down, I want to read about it. But it's an asceticism to do that, because you could say, I finished the paper, I'm going to turn it in, it's not so bad, I'll get a good grade, and now I'll go, you know, rent my next video. But it's an asceticism that puts a check onto helping you become connatural to your study. And that's really what the life of study requires. You have to like to read a book, you have to like You have to like it. And you don't have to like it right away in the beginning. You don't have to like every book you read. You don't have to like everything. But eventually, you know, you have to like to be at your desk. And so that it becomes an integrated part of your life, depending on your vocation, your husband, the children. So, quick answer is the student that's inspired to want to become more involved in the intellectual life. Um, at the same time, should become holy, and uh, and then at that point, the next is you have to read. This is, and you can't read Wikipedia, <laughs> <laughs> or you can't get all your footnotes off the internet and so forth. Uh, it used to know that the, the, the French chefs would never admit that they used uh, a blender or cuisine knife because everything had to be done by hand. And if they ever get caught, there was a time to, you know, to say he uses blender. <laughs> that was like saying. So now, and there was a time. <laughs> now I confess, you know, it's tough. I mean, not you know. I mean, it's if you just need the date your book is published, not to go online and go into the catalog instead of you know getting off, getting in the driving, or going to the catalog, or you know. Cut and paste. Where uh, I don't know, do they sell index cards anymore? <laughs> <laughs> we were taught was how to do an index card. You take the book name, you put the publisher, you put all the information because you'll need for the bibliography, and you put the page, and then you synopsize it, and then you do this. And then you do well, that was very useful, you know. But after a while, and I, I poor, I don't remember Father Henning, but I saddened me when he died, uh, having halfway through his monumental study of the history of the American order, and I went up to the 
studies at the time, I remember, and there were file cabinets, literally, from there to there, literally file cabinets. And I opened them, and they were, it was all typed, meticulous notes, notes. This was all in all the books he read here. The problem was all of that, I mean, this is not even a history was, you know, in the end, it's only God that matters, I mean. And I tried desperately to get that saved, and, 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 I, and I couldn't. They wanted to throw it out because they simply said, you can't use anybody else's notes. And I wasn't persuaded that was the truth because some of those notes were based on books, you know, where in Europe or where had you However, the point of the matter is that research is easier today because you can cut and paste. You can do, you know, you can, you don't all stop. Okay, so you didn't, you have, you know, you have to, be, you have to begin to read and like to read. Then you have to learn to write. You have to write. And you should learn, you know, the worst thing in the world is to write in a hurry the night for the papers do. If you have a term paper, write a paragraph every day. You don't have to, this is not confession time. <laughs> Thank you very much, Thank John. You so Thank much. You.